1: It's beginning to feel like 2008 all over again, with financial markets in freefall and economies collapsing. Like epidemiologists, financial policymakers, not known for their spontaneity, are struggling to get ahead of the curve with emergency measures to stem the crisis. But might they in fact be provoking just the panic they're trying to avoid? Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Simon Long, an editor at The Economist. America's Federal Reserve has cut interest rates to close to zero as part of drastic measures to soften the blow of COVID-19. But what more can central bankers do? And why some companies are responding by clinging to cash. Plus, it's not just people that governments want to stay at home. They're stopping companies exporting medical supplies. Why, that may not be a good idea. Around the world, the reality of the COVID 19 outbreak is beginning to sink in. There are now over 180,000 cases globally, and it's been the cause of a torrid few weeks in the stock markets with jaw dropping falls. In response, central banks have stepped in. America's Federal Reserve on the 15th of March cut interest rates by a full percentage point to a range of between 0 and 0.25%. That's as low as it has ever gone. And it was the Fed's second emergency cut outside a scheduled meeting in less than a fortnight. But despite this, on Monday, the S&P 500 plunged by 12%, its biggest one-day fall since Black Monday in October 1987. Now the Fed has ramped up its efforts, announcing an emergency lending programme to try to keep credit flowing. But is it enough? And what more can central banks do? Patrick Fowles is The Economist's Business Affairs Editor, and Alice Fullwood is our American Finance Correspondent. Patrick, Alice, hello.
2: Hi, Simon.
3: Hello, Simon.
1: Patrick, let's start with you. The Fed was already close to zero anyway, so it didn't have much room to manoeuvre.
2: That's right. Uh, For years, economists have wondered what would happen if there's a crisis and central banks were unable to cut interest rates very much. And we're now in exactly that situation. The Fed is roughly at zero. If you look around the world, central banks, if you add them all up, they're roughly at about half a percentage point. So there is now not really any room to cut interest rates. That means the burden of action to prevent uh, a severe recession, possibly even a depression, lies with other actions by central banks. So for example, buying up assets like bonds or shares to try and prop up confidence. And also with governments who really have to bear most of the burden and will need to extend very extensive fiscal and lending measures to support businesses and and households.
1: Alice, uh, the market's initial response to the Fed's action yesterday was hardly encouraging. What are investors and traders telling you?
3: So I think there are two interesting things that investors are saying right now. And the first is that the Fed has been one of the government agencies at the forefront of the response to the crisis. And although they're taking all the action they can, people worry that they have either run out of ammunition or that the tools that they have are not well suited to dealing with this crisis. Both of those concerns seem quite reasonable, given that the Fed is at the lower bound and that monetary policy is not sort of an obvious cure for a pandemic. And the second thing that I think is interesting is that the market sell-off since the middle of February has gone through two very distinct phases. And the first phase was almost sorting the wheat from the chaff in markets. So companies that you would think were sort of obvious victims of the crisis, like cruise companies, hotels, airlines, uh, companies that were very indebted, all companies that will struggle with much, much lower revenues or have very high sort of costs. Those were the ones that sold off most. And, you know, investors were kind of picking winners. The second phase, which has been over the last couple of weeks, has been more liquidation. So usually when you see risky assets like stock selling off, you see bonds and gold rally. And that was the case for the first couple of weeks of the reaction to the pandemic. But over the last week, you saw all assets fall in price all at once, which implies that, you know, people are just getting out of markets. Holding assets is too volatile. This sort of market reaction is, is unendurable. And people are just sort of heading for the, the exit and they don't want to engage with markets
1: anymore. So, Patrick, I mean, it seems fairly clear that what the Fed's done so far is certainly not enough to steady the ship, but what else do they have in their toolkit or or what should they be doing?
2: Yeah, so what's become clear over the last several days, really, is just how bad and how steep GDP will fall if the economy is in lockdown. So the latest figures out of China for January and February show astonishing drops in consumer spending and investment, roughly a 20% drop. And over the last couple of days, economists have begun to pencil in similar drops in Europe. So forecast for uh, Eurozone GDP to drop by 10% in the second quarter of this year, which would be really incredible jaw dropping. People are still more optimistic about the US, I think, irrationally so. So central banks and governments are going to have to respond to this. I mean, part of it is, about calming the money markets uh, with massive injections of money to make sure that banks and companies who issue bonds and sort of receive some assistance but i think really the bulk of it lies in two other areas one is fiscal spending so just giving tax cuts or handouts to households and the other and i think the the most important by far is very very wide scale lending to businesses from restaurants to volkswagen around the world to make sure that they're able to stay in, um, you know, functioning even if there is a very steep drop in activity for a couple of months. And it is that last category that governments are still grappling with because it is an enormous logistical challenge.
1: Can we look at how other countries are responding and whether that gives a lesson for the US? I mean, in Europe, later today, we're going to see Britain's finance minister, Rishi Sunak, launch a rescue plan. France has promised 45 billion euros, I think, in economic aid. It's banned short selling. Uh, Germany's offering credit extensions. Is anybody getting this right?
2: Well, I think, you know, so far roughly around the world, there's been promises of fiscal spending. So sort of Payroll tax cuts and the like of about 1% to 2% of GDP, which is a pretty significant stimulus. But if you look at efforts to get liquidity quickly to companies, which are, you know, many of which are already in dire straits after only a couple of weeks of lockdown, I think we're much less further along. I mean, Germany, for example, has announced um, one of its state backed banks has a, a fund of up to 600 billion euros. That's a was a huge number, it's about 16% of Germany's GDP available to lend freely to companies. But simply earmarking the money is not enough. You have to work out how are you going to get loans to millions of companies in the space of two or three weeks. And I think the answer probably ultimately lies with the banking system and asking the banks who normally have relationships with all of these companies to act as almost agents for the government and extend credit to firms quickly.
1: And Patrick, earlier on, you mentioned a a particularly dire word, depression, as to what might be facing the world. How seriously are people taking that risk?
2: It's just begun to sink home. You know, China had a very tough national lockdown and an even more severe one around Wuhan for roughly two months and its GDP has probably dropped by 10 to 20% in a quarter. Now, what you could see in Western economies somewhere like Italy is a more extensive national lockdown um, because the disease has spread further, which suggests the GDP drop could be as severe as in China, possibly worse. The key thing is really that not the severity, but the brevity of it. So how quickly Can you clamp down on the disease and hopefully kind of see the number of infections peak? And if all of this only lasts for a quarter, you know, three months, I think there's a very strong case activity will bounce back. If the medical lockdown lasts for longer, then we're in different territory. And I think there will be a pretty significant contraction in GDP that lasts.
1: And Alice, can we look at the global market reaction? The US clearly has had exceptional falls. But are they being mirrored in, in other markets around the world? Or are there places that are withstanding the panic?
3: So in general, stock markets globally have fallen very significantly, with the exception of China, where the sell-off was earlier because the pandemic occurred earlier. But nowhere saw quite the sort of extremely steep drop that we got in the US yesterday. And that might be perhaps because the US has not yet agreed its fiscal stimulus package. A few other countries have managed to get those sort of passed earlier in their respective governments. In the US, we're still waiting for Congress to agree on exactly what the package should
1: contain. And Patrick, I suppose there are two dangers with the approaches we've seen adopted. One is that they're so dramatic and extreme that they create the very panic that they're trying to forestall. And the other is that they are so big that they, they build up long term problems for the economy. Do, do you see either of those
2: risks? Well, I think the first risk is something you've just almost got to take on the chin because the consequences of not doing anything if the economy is going to be locked down for kind of medical reasons are huge. So whether or not the initial reaction is more panic or not, I think you just have to go full steam ahead. On the second longer term consequence, it's a really good question because if you look at two recent sort of bailouts, they've had very very big and bad after effects. So the bailout of the banks in Western economies really polluted the political discussion for quite a long time. There was a sense the bankers had got away with murder. Secondly, in China, after the subprime crisis, China went on a kind of massive bank lending binge. That had long uh, lasting consequences too for China because its banks were full of Bad debts, and there was a sense that the financial system had become kind of rotten, and it's taken a long time to begin to clear those problems up. What to do now? Well, I think there are some ways of mitigating it. I mean, one might be that the loans that governments make to companies um, come with grants of a limited number of shares for the government. I, I don't think a large amount, but enough to show that the taxpayer would benefit in any upside. But I think the reality is, like all crises, unfortunately, moral hazard goes out the window because the urgency of preventing a total shutdown of the economy far supersedes the feeling of guilt after it's happened.
1: And now, Alice, you've been writing about how businesses are responding to these challenges. And it seems the answer is cash is king, right? So what are the signs that companies are trying to get hold of cash?
3: Well, the first sign is just that they are telling us that they need it. The airlines uh, yesterday were requesting fifty billion dollars in aid to help them weather this uh, period of you know very low revenues when they still have extensive costs, and that will sort of run down their cash piles and sort of put them in in danger very very quickly. But there are broader signs that you can look at in markets more generally. And the third place you might look is at what the banks are doing. And, you know, a lot of companies have these things called standing credit facilities with banks. And these are pre-agreed, you know, revolving credit loans. These are almost like the equivalent of a credit card, but for a company. And... A lot of companies you've seen sort of evidence that they've been drawing down on those credit lines and that has prompted some strange behaviour from the banks. For example, you saw banks selling down other types of assets that they hold like treasuries, possibly because the sort of loan asset portion of their balance
1: sheet had grown. And Patrick, what are the effects of all this being? I mean, how many companies are struggling to survive? How many are at death's door?
2: Well, I, I, I think the typical company right now, and in fact, I was talking to someone who runs a, a big business in Holland um, uh, last night, who was explaining, you know, that they have several weeks before they fear they might go bust. So I think most companies right now are going through the following exercise. The first is to try and Kind of guess how much your revenues fall by if the economy is locked down. And the answer is for lots of businesses, drops of 30, 40, 50% are possible. And then the next thing you do is try and tot up what available money you have. So cash in the bank or agreements to have overdrafts expanded and that kind of thing. And then I think for many companies, they'll be realizing that that only keeps them going for you know, a matter of weeks or months. And then they go to the th- the sort of third stage, which is working out what expenses they can cut. And obviously, the fear is that businesses start firing people or stop paying them wages, or working out whether or not they can get emergency support from governments or central banks.
1: Indeed, Alice, can I turn to you? I mean, one difference so far from 2008, I suppose, is that There hasn't been much panic yet about the future of the banking system, but are we about to enter that sort of period?
3: So the banks are in a really interesting position for this crisis because, you know, as you said last time, they were maybe the cause of turmoil and this time they could be one of the arms through which the impact of the crisis is dulled. And this is why you're seeing the Fed, as Patrick has said, moving aggressively to make it easier for banks to keep lending. So a couple of the things that they did on Sunday, in addition to cutting interest rates, were basically say to the banks that they should borrow from this facility called the discount window, which traditionally has been where in trouble banks would go to get emergency cash. It's now just a window that banks should feel free to use and the interest rate is much less penalising if they use it. They also eased some of the, the capital and liquidity restrictions. So Banks have built up these huge capital buffers worth sort of more than a trillion dollars since the crisis and also huge pools of uh, what are called high quality liquid assets. Um, They're worth about three trillion dollars. And those buffers, prior to Sunday, they were supposed to remain in place. And if banks ever sort of dipped too far into those buffers, they had to file plans to talk about how they would remediate that with the, the Fed immediately. And the Fed basically said on Sunday, don't worry about it. If you dip into those buffers so you can keep lending, you won't be in trouble. These are some of the things that the Fed has done to help keep banks lending. But it is unclear the extent to which they can work Um as the uncertainty continues to unfold, then it becomes much, much harder for banks to see the light at the end of the tunnel that would mean that they would ever get these loans paid back and that these firms could continue to exist without going bankrupt. And so they're in a very difficult position now deciding whether to keep lending, to lend more aggressively, and sort of trying to figure out which firms are the ones that they think can remain solvent. And Without greater clarity on the nature and timing of the shock, it will be very difficult for banks to do that as well. So I think you do come back to what Patrick's been saying, which is that
1: ultimately the government is the lender of last resort. Alice, uh, th- thanks very much. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned at least some light at the end of the tunnel because you and Patrick do make it sound quite a long and very dark tunnel. Alice Fulwood, Patrick Fowles, thank you both very much.
3: Thank you, Simon. Thanks, Simon
1: you can keep up to date with The Economist online. Try a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And finally, across the world, we've seen a worrying rise in trade restrictions as governments try to deal with the shortage of medical supplies. The latest was the European Union. On March the 15th, Ursula von der Leyen, President of the European Commission, announced its new proposals. We need to protect our health workers who are in the first line of defense against the virus. We must safeguard them with protective equipment, masks, gloves, protective garments, etc. This is why we adopted today an export authorization scheme for protective equipment. This means that such medical goods can only be exported to non-EU countries with the explicit authorisation of the EU governments. But are these government fears justified?
0: As people are rushing to the shops, trying to make sure that they have enough food and hand gel, governments are trying to make sure that they and their health workers have enough masks, respirators,
1: gowns and goggles. Samaya Keynes is The Economist trade and globalisation editor.
0: The COVID-19 outbreak has led to a massive rush for medical gear. So there's a huge increase in demand from people trying to stock up themselves. There's a huge increase in demand from governments who need protective equipment for their health workers. And there's also demand from governments who may not need the equipment right now, but they're trying to build stockpiles for the near future. Some of them, I think, when this pandemic arrived, realised that their stockpiles were perhaps a bit out of date. There are companies making this equipment. Uh, Normally, they make it to supply hospitals, perhaps industrial workers. But obviously, we're not in normal times right now. So all these suppliers of medical equipment right now are running full pelt, right at, at full capacity. And there are stories of companies, you know, joining in, trying to help out. Chinese state-owned enterprises are now getting into the game and trying to ramp up their production of medical supplies to send to the rest of the world. But the World Health Organization, the WHO, they have warned that supplies of these key medical protective equipment are not going to keep up with the demand.
1: And in terms of of actual trade restrictions, what exactly are governments doing?
0: Well, governments are pretty much taking matters into their own hands. There's been a real cascade of export restrictions on things like masks and respirators. Some of these are explicit bans, but some of them aren't. The government is saying, oh, sure, you can export this. You just need approval from us. But really, the intention there is to restrict exports and um, we're seeing this all around the world from countries like Morocco, Bulgaria. We saw France and Germany impose restrictions. And then most recently on March 16th, as you heard, the European Commission essentially announced restrictions of their own. So now if you want to send anything from outside the EU, you'll have to get approval.
1: I suppose governments will justify this in terms of their own voters by saying we're looking after your interests but do they have any other justification?
0: Yeah so essentially the justification that they're using is that unless they put these restrictions in place the supplies are not going to go to where people need them most right instead they will go to where people are willing to pay the most and that won't lead to good outcomes and you know to be fair there are big outbreaks in Europe in in Italy you've got growing outbreaks in, in in France and Germany, Italy hadn't imposed an export restriction of personal protective equipment. But if you are France and Germany, you look at what's happening and you might say, oh, you know what, we're going to make this unilateral decision that we need these supplies more than you over there.
1: Is it a good idea or are there any unforeseen consequences this such a policy might produce?
0: Yeah, so I should first acknowledge that that this is really, really difficult. The politics of this are really, really difficult. But there are risks. The risks are that these restrictions make supply chains difficult to manage so that it actually makes it harder to get supplies to where they're needed most. So if you imagine you have these regional supply networks where companies are trying to get equipment to where it's needed, if you suddenly say, actually, if you try to truck this shipment through a particular country it's not going to be able to get out that creates headaches and you know maybe now isn't the best time for them to be having to deal with those headaches the other risk is that this creates a cascade of trade restrictions where governments see that others have applied trade restrictions they become worried about their own access to supplies and then they impose their own trade restrictions and that essentially makes the problem worse And basically everyone ends up with their own export barriers. Everyone's market is smaller and no one is better off. There is some precedent for this. That dynamic was seen in the late 2000s when food prices rose very, very sharply and lots of governments in the developing world imposed trade restrictions. And actually that contributed to further price rises. Perhaps one of the biggest risks is that this just undermines solidarity As the world tries to deal with what is really a global crisis, I think now that we've seen these unilateral export restrictions, there are questions about what comes next. You know, what happens if Eastern European countries get hit? They might not be members of the EU, but perhaps they're still part of this EU supply chain. What happens when much poorer countries are suffering? You know, what does this mean for global solidarity then?
1: but as you say this poses extremely acute political problems for the governments involved what should they be doing instead
0: yeah I'm, okay so this might sound a bit sappy but they just need to be working together and coordinating and making sure that they are not duplicating their stocks you know making sure that they're keeping track of where the equipment is making sure that it is going to health workers and perhaps not you know, Joe Schmoe, who hasn't got any symptoms, but just feels the need to wear a respirator wherever he goes. And to be fair, the EU has been trying to do this within the EU. But really, you need to do that at the highest governance level possible. You really need to to include everyone you possibly can. Where is Switzerland in all of this, for example? Um, And, you know, we've just had four years of the EU throwing shade at the Trump administration for its unilateral actions and claiming to be the champions of of multilateralism. So, you know, I think either show that you are or maybe keep quiet.
1: Thank you, Samir. Thank you. Didn't sound at all sappy to me. And please don't keep quiet.
0: I'll do my best.
1: And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, oh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse?